Matthew chapter 14, again, we are following the Lord in a chronological order, his ministry and his life. We know that uh, he had just commissioned the disciples to go. Um, He gave them the authority to, to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. Uh, again, very important question that was raised to me last week is, Harry, that power, was that the same power that the early church experienced at, in the book of the Acts? Um, I don't want to say it wasn't the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was not the same experience. The power that Jesus gave to the disciples there last week as we studied it was the word exousia. He had given them the authority. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit was backing that up. Um, And and when they were casting out demons, um, the demon community knew exactly who was behind it and whose power it was. It wasn't human power. It was Holy Spirit power. Amen. But that word there is authority. When we read in the book of Acts where Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait, there was 120 of them. Then all of a sudden, um, there was a mighty wind that was introduced, cloven tongues of fire that sat upon each and every one of them. They began to speak in tongues. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is a power where we get the word dunamis. And it's an explosive. In fact, we get the word dynamite from it. The Christian today needs both. They need exousia to have that authority, which when we read the word, you'll know what your authority is. And then due to his power, there's an excitement, there's an explosiveness within the believer's life as it relates to ministry. So does that answer the question as far as was that the baptism? It was not. It was just another act of God's grace on the disciples to exercise authority. They now had that great commission. They were sent out. We don't know how long. We don't know if it was a few days, a few weeks. But now they come back. And it should have been a time of debriefing, diffusing, as the, as the uh, critical incident stress people would say. It's a time just to reflect and talk about what just took place, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't turn out to be a time of rest for them. Picking it up in chapter 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, verse 1 here, and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, therefore mighty works do show forth in, um, themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him, put him, him in prison for Herodias's sake, that's the brother of Philip's wife, for John said unto him, it is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now upon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask, she she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John, John Baptist's head in a charger. What a lovely woman. Imagine being married to her. You would have to keep one eye open at night. Hey, just trying to keep it real, you know. Don't you talk back to me. I'll take your head off. All right. <laughs> 
anyway. Now, for the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sakes, uh, and them that sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. He sent and he beheaded the greatest prophet of all. Imagine the charge against that woman. The greatest prophet that ever lived. Even Jesus said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Oh, no. See, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And the reason he was greater than Jeremiah, greater than Elijah or uh, uh, Elisha, why he was greater than Moses and even David is because he and he alone was the only one that would introduce Jesus as the Lamb of God, that would take away the sins of the world. That's what makes him great. And guess who's even greater now within his kingdom? You and I. That's what the Bible says. If you can imagine that, fathom that, if you can get your mind wrapped around that. Because of our our commission to go into the world, to make disciples, to teach verse by verse, rightly dividing, God looks from his, his kingdom that, There's even one greater than John the Baptist. And that's you and I, the church. Anyway, sorry for the little sidetrack, but. uh, So he sends, he has him beheaded. He and he was brought, uh, his head was brought in a charger. It's just a a silver platter or actually could have just been a a wooden, a wooden uh, platter. And given to, uh, given to the damsel and she brought it to her mother. And then his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. I'm not going to belabor this account here too long, um, but you can see um, um, how powerful guilt can be. You know, how it can make you just make the silliest promises. And then because you want to save face and um, because of the people around him, he followed through with what he had promised. He had actually, in the other account, he said, uh, you know, I'll give you up to a third of my kingdom. Uh, pardon me, half of my kingdom. That's what he had promised this damsel, this young lady. And, uh, and, and then when he realized it, uh, to save face, he had to follow through with it. So between guilt and, and just the fear of man, he did something so ungodly, something that would be recorded for all, everyone to, to read, you know, throughout human history. But here's where I really want to kind of focus on this morning. It, it says here, when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place, a deserted place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. When Jesus went forth and he saw the great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them and healed their sick And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a a desert place or deserted place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the village and buy themselves victuals. And uh, Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give you them uh, something to eat. They said unto him, well, we have but five loaves and two fish. And he said, well, bring them hither to me. A very important verse in our text this morning. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took five loaves and two fishes and he looked up to heaven. He blessed 
And he brake and he gave the loaves to his disciples and then the disciples to the multitude. They did eat and were filled. And they, and he, they took up the, the fragments that remained, twelve baskets filled. And they, they had eaten, when they had eaten, there was about 5,000 men beside the women and children. Straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. Please be, uh, stand with me just one more time. Bible in hand, let's pray over this text. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much again for your word. And again, like Peter would say, where can we go? You have the very words to eternal life. And, and again, why we say it's a privilege. We are here today to think we get to study it. And we get to meditate upon it. Lord, we have the privilege of opening our hearts and asking your Holy Spirit to pour your word into our hearts. And again, we pray that whatever it is that you need to speak to us about, whether that be individually or collectively, God, God, our hearts, they belong to you. And we ask for your will to be done. Father, we ask again that when we leave here, this morning, we would have been enriched by your word, empowered by your word, changed by your word. Thank you again for this precious, precious book that we call the Rhema, the Logos of God, the spoken and written word. We pray now, Lord, anoint our minds and anoint our hearts to receive all that you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Starting again as we uh, inductively go through this, uh, it says at that time, and again it's given us a pretty accurate timeline here. This is right after again the Great Commission um, where Jesus sent them out with the authority and also, you know, and, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, again, it just came to mind when they returned, they were so rejoicing about that authority that Jesus would turn around and look at them and say, hey, guys, don't rejoice because you chased a few demons away, but rejoice because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, gang, just for personal application, that is what should bring us ultimate joy extreme joy. Not that God uses us and trust me, I am so blessed that I get to do what I do. So blessed that God would just pour out his grace upon many of us around here and said, look, I just want to use you. We're stoked. But what we're so stoked about, even more so, is that when we close our eyes at night, we can rest that if anything were ever to happen, we would be in his presence because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen, guys? 
but it gives us that timeline there. Herod the Tetrarch. Listen, I am not going to belabor and beat you up with all these Herods, man. This is one messed up family. Trust me. You talk about dysfunctional 101. Study this family tree. You look at it, sometimes you think it's only one branch on the tree, if you know what I mean. I mean, they're royally mixed up, okay? But this is the Herod, uh, the Tetrarch. He's in charge of a quarter part. Uh, so, uh, there was four quarters in Palestine at that time. He was in charge of one of them. His brother, his name was uh, Philip. And uh, um, But it, it's at this time where Herod, this Herod, heard of the fame of Jesus, like many, and that's the reason for the multitudes thronging Jesus, tripping over each other, because the news spread like wildfire. Man, they heard about, you know, they heard about him able to raise the dead. They heard about the lame walking. They heard about blind eyes opening up. You know, they heard about the sea. No doubt. They heard about the sea, you know, turning out to be like a sheet of glass. And Herod heard all this, man. He heard of this fame. And, and, and it tells us that uh, he says to his servant that this isn't about this Jesus. This is about none other than John the Baptist. Now he is ridded with guilt. He knows he's made some mistakes. And now all of a sudden he gets spooked out about Jesus. And he thinks, no, this is John. He's risen from the dead. That's the reason why this man Jesus is doing all these miracles. And then the Holy Spirit gives us a commentary of why he feels so guilty. And why he's making all these mistakes. You you see it in verse 3, 4. This is the reason. That he laid hold on John, he bound him, he put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said to him, now what's happening here is, and we read this in the other Gospels, that there was a time when John was baptizing in the Jordan River. John had a, a ministry called Baptism Unto Repentance. Jesus' ministry was a little different because it was the Baptism Unto Power in the Holy Spirit. But John was still calling, remember, he's Old Testament, he's not New Testament. He was still considered, even though he's written and and talked about in the New Testament, he is the last Old Testament prophet. So no, no wonder he's preaching this idea of repent from your sins, show that you've been re, you are repentive, come down into water. See, you and I, our baptism is a little different. When we're baptized in water, we're already saved. What we're doing symbolically by going under the water and coming back, we are symbolizing, we're symbolizing there's been an inward experience that we've all partook of, but now we are expe- expressing it out. Outwardly. Something has happened inwardly. We're trying to show our family and relatives and friends. This is what death, burial, resurrection. It's a picture of we are now resurrected into new life. And Jesus has asked us all to make sure we're all baptized into water. Does it save us? No. We are saved um, by grace through faith that not of ourselves. Because if it was the other way, we could go, go around toot our horns and boast. But anyway, be that as it may, he lays hold on him, right? Because he pulled him on the carpet. 
Apparently, Herod comes to where John is ministering, and John sees him, and John's not going to hold any punches. He just says, listen, what you're doing with your brother's wife, this illicit sexual relationship. Now, in the Levitical law, you'll notice it says it's not lawful for you to have her. He's referring to the Levitical law, and the Levitical law said this was equivalent to incest. So he is really, royally blowing it in the eyes of the Jewish people there and he pulls him on the carpet and he's and Herod is he does he's not down with this and he's so angry he's just about ready to pull this the plug and say you know kill this guy murder him. but now he looks at all the people and he he says I'm afraid of them I'm afraid of what they'll do to me you know, and again, this Herod is just a political puppet, by the way. Rome put him there just to appease the Jews in the area. He had no power, you know, not, not political power. He was just a puppet. But man, he did not like anyone pointing out, listen carefully, any shortcomings. And man, this was more than a shortcoming. But that's the human nature from time to time. When anyone points out maybe something that, uh, you know, we haven't quite dealt with. And they just say, you know, that's sin in the eyes of God. Yeah, there's only two ways to really deal with that. Either we get mad, we sulk, or we're going to want somebody's head on a charger. (laughs) Or we repent. Hubamoni, we... We agree with God and we confess that it's wrong and we lay it at the cross. And verse John, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. Cleanse us, you know. But there's only two ways of handling sin. Either get all mad about it and allow it to fester and become like yeast in your life. and Or just get it before the cross. Makes sense? Or you know what's going to happen? It'll fester. And you'll, you'll start to make a lot of dumb mistakes. And, and you're going to wish that you laid it at the cross at the very beginning. And just ask God to forgive you. He's faithful and just. He's so faithful. So just to forgive you of all your, your sins. And when he says he forgives, he what? He forgets. We're the only ones that dredge it back up, not him. Oh, he keeps bringing it up. No, no. That, that's either the devil or it's your flesh. But it's not him. He takes your sin and he casts it as far as the east from the west. You know, I don't get it too. Why people want to camp around their their testimony and they just kind of glorify the way they used to be. I don't even want to think about the way I used to be. That's that's in the sea. Amen, guys? Well, anyways, again, there's that bunny trail. Write them down. And so, uh, he's mad about it. He gets to, he forgets about it. And then on his birthday, uh, Herodias' uh, daughter dances before him. Uh, Herod is moved um, lustfully, uh, I might add, and makes that, I don't want to use the word stupid, that's pretty harsh, but it was pretty dumb. Um, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, you know. and, um, And so when he realizes what he's done, uh, now he is in a place, a predicament that he really can't bail out of. And he just, again, just says, take John and now uh, remove his head and bring it to uh, this damsel. And then the damsel then t- took John. And I'm not trying to paint 
a picture in your mind of, uh, as it relates to this. Um, but you can see how low human depravity can become. You know, and of course, in this generation, and with the help of internet, you know, the, 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 the worst thing I've ever done lately is I viewed one of these uh, decapitations of believers. Now, that's something that's going to be scarred in my mind uh, for a long time, to watch a brother have his head removed because of his confession in Christ. Um, but imagine this, this, how low a human being can get to where they're glorying in that. And um, I don't know. It, it's a very disturbing thing. That's why when we drop down to verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, now Jesus is disturbed. He is, he is moved to where now he wants to take his disciple disciples and he wants to go to a deserted place. Now, if you were to look that word up, uh, deserted, is very interesting because it literally means isolation or a place to experience loneliness. He doesn't want anyone else around at this time. Only one set, the, very, the initial thing that's in Jesus' heart is this is very disturbing to him personally. This is his cousin. This is the forerunner to the Messiah. And uh, I was just told that this Herod took off my cousin's head. He wants to get alone. Listen, this is not a fleshly act. This isn't something soulish, very shallowy. This is something that God shows to you from time to time. Within humanity, within our humanness, there might be times where you just say to yourself or to your mate or to someone, I got to get alone. It's not a sign of weakness to have a desire to want to just be alone. Those alone times that I've experienced is probably the times where I hear God the loudest. It's when I'm around people that I don't hear him like I would say on an island alone with the Lord. Does it make sense? So don't think it's a sign of weakness. No, I think it's a sign of you know exactly what you need. So he departs there. But now, if, if Rembrandt could have only painted this picture. You know, I showed you the picture of the, uh, that experience with the disciples on the sea when, when you notice there was 13 men in that ship and there should have only been, you know, 12 disciples. There was 13. And one of them was Rembrandt himself, if you look carefully. But when you look at his pictures and his murals, this guy always had a habit of putting the expressions of the individual more. In other words, if he were to paint this picture of this crowd realizing Jesus just took off with his disciples, you wouldn't just see a mass of humanity trying to run around following Jesus on the edge of the shore of Galilee. You would have seen the expressions on their face. The, this, the expressions of desperation. The expression of her pain. That's what you would have seen in Mr. Rembrandt's painting. But he... To the best of my knowledge, he, he never did. What's happening is here is that when Jesus took, got word of his cousin losing his life, being murdered, 
He then takes his disciples. He gets back into the boat. He wants to cross over to the other side to a location, a remote location that he knew of to be alone. But then someone saw him leave and they started to follow him on foot around the Sea of Galilee. Now, their terrain around the Sea of Galilee, especially the northern part, is pretty rough. There are some places where it's a little marshy, like around the uh, Gennesaret, you know, around that area. But anyway, they start to make motion, momentum. They're traveling in every village, in every city that they come across. They're saying, hey, what's the deal? Jesus is on the move. So now it's picking up steam. By the time they get to the other side, Jesus now is confronted with a crowd. Now it says 5,000 men plus women and children. And some have speculated the crowd could have been anywhere between fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus is now staring at. Noticing their faces. Seeing their need. That's what he says here in verse 14. Jesus went forth. He saw the great multitude. Notice what it says in the latter part of verse 14. That he was moved with compassion towards them. He healed their sick. The other gospel says he also taught them. Moved with compassion. Now if you were to look it up in Mr. Strong's concordance. Moved with compassion is only one word. It's a very odd word in the Greek language. And it literally, literally means it's a place, a seat of love and empathy, a seat of compassion. Jesus isn't just feeling sorry. He isn't. You know, when we talk about our hearts, oh man, my heart was moved. The Old Testament would use the word bowels, bowels of compassion. But it is still the same location within the person. It is the place of spirituality where it's safe to say. It is a place where you see somebody and your heart begins to just break and rent. It's not sympathy. Sympathy is just looking at someone, feeling sorry for them and just moving on. This word compassion and the word empathy are pretty close together. It's where, man, you have to do something about it. You just can't just look at this crowd and say, you know what, let's just go to the other side. Let's lose them. I personally believe that in our humanness, it's impossible to have this kind of compassion. Oh, we can have tons of sympathy. We, we can actually weep, weep over it. But would you die for it? See, that's the compassion that Jesus is using here. I read a story of a missionary. Uh, she was a nun, actually. And uh, she was one of these gals that uh, she was actually she was serving in Africa. And she was in those areas where you, we've see, all seen pictures of the children just laying there with riddled with flies and maggots and kids dying at a record rate. Well, they had to go in and rescue her because she forgot to eat, take care of herself as she was trying to minister to these kids. That's somebody with empathy and compassion. And again, that's, I believe, God wants us to be that way. I think there's degrees of it. I think there's certain levels of it. But we can't just think because we feel sorry for something. We invite a speaker in. He tells all the tear-jerking stories. So we buy a picture and we, we give 15 bucks a month. Now, listen, that's a good thing. I'm not trying to minimize that, but... 
That's not this. This is where you go. And you're willing to sell out. That's compassion. It's a seed of love. And it's a seed of pity. Exactly what the word means. And when it was evening, it tells us in verse 15, his disciples came to him saying, man, this is a bearing place. And the time is now past. He kind of gives us a timeline even for the day, you know. So with all this happening, with him getting, hearing the news, well, coming back together, hearing the news, getting into a boat, going to the other side, seeing the multitude, dealing with the issues, teaching, having sympathy and compassion, we're probably somewhere around three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus has been at this all day, all day. The time is spent. Send them away. Let them go into the villages. Now, uh, again, I'm going to make some rhyme and reason to this whole thing. And the closure is going to be really the thrust of my message this morning. Uh, And again, I don't want to give you a misunderstanding of what's really in the hearts of the disciples. Were they just saying, hey, let's alleviate this problem. Let's get rid of it. Send them away. Or were they also saying, listen, man, if it's up to us, the best thing to do is let them find a little nearby town and let them get something to eat. And again, please keep in mind the multitude, 15,000, 20,000 people. There's not enough food in these villages. Some of these villages, mannerisms and customs, there's a couple hundred people living in a village. This is a problem. And even Jesus even alludes to it. But Jesus said, no, they don't need to depart. Verse 16, give them, you give them something to eat. Now you talk about a challenge. Now Peter's already known not to open his mouth all the time. So he lets Andrew and Philip talk during it. You read the other accounts, Peter doesn't open his mouth. But I could see Peter going, <laughs> hello. You know. They say, and we know from the other gospel, this was Andrew. But all we have is five loaves and two fish. The loaves, by the way, these are not Italian rolls. I'm on this crazy diet where it doesn't let me eat carbs, you know. Boy, I'll tell you, that's the hardest thing about Italian bread and the olive oil. and oh, It's torturous. Now, this is just a little three to four inch little flat wafer. That's all it is. Most likely stale. Mom packed it for him. I guess mom didn't realize who she was really packing for But look what he said. Just bring them to me. In verse 18. And then he commanded the disciples or the multitudes to sit down on the grass. He takes the five loaves. Please notice. He takes these five loaves and the two fish. This fish, glorified carp. Not even glorified carp. A miniaturized perch. We're not talking about a nice sized salmon. Talking about perch you know you go to israel today you go to see a galilee and they give you the thing called saint peter's fish <laughs> and they raise them on farms that isn't peter's fish 
But uh, one time, me and Franciani, we were eating it, and we stuck a coin in its mouth, took a picture of it, set it home. But I think, and I said to you as we were reading through it, that this is a very important verse. Please highlight it in your Bible. Just bring it to me. So he commands them to sit down and he takes the five loaves, two fish. And I just love Jesus. I love just learning about him. He blesses it. He's praying over it. He breaks it. He gives the loaves, notice, to his disciples. And then the disciples gives it to who? The multitude. That's an order that needs to be recognized. Because we have the tendency to reverse it. We really do. Look what it says in verse 20. Man, they did. Man's not there. That's Harryism. But they did all eat and were filled. That word fill circle in your Bible. The word is gluttoned. This is Thanksgiving plus 10. You know what that feels like, don't it? You wait all day for that meal, man. You eat half the plate and your stuff already. But they were filled. And I love how it says that they took up 12 baskets. It's like the Lord just trying to show the disciples something. How many disciples were there? 12. You wonder, just each one of you take up a basket. Let's get going. No, that's right. He's going to send them away. Take your basket with you. And again, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that there was about 5,000 men there. But their custom, it's a mannerism. It's not a slant on anyone. But women and children were never counted. Even when they, uh, Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Uh, women weren't really, were not included until we, we start to study the New Testament church. That's when we start to see how God wants to use women as well as men. And, um, but they were never counted for. Verse 22 says, and straightway he constrained his disciples. Now, I could have left off at verse 21 and picked it up next week at verse 22. But I just want you to get this picture. Here they are after everything's said and done. And there's this great miracle but with the feeding of the 5,000. It says straightway. And the word straightway almost gives you the sense there's an urgency to this. And I want you to do it right away. He sends them away. What's the rhyme and reason for that? And then does he want to say anything to the, the multitude? Does he want to just a couple more moments with the multitude? And then he sends them away. Does he want to be left alone? But the word to constrain them literally means to necessitate, to compel, or literally drive away. It's almost that I see in my mind and my heart that Jesus is telling them, almost not just compelling, forcing them to leave. You need to go. And I need to be left alone. Just, again, another picture in my mind that a lot of people just, I don't know, sometimes, you know, they, they don't see it. Now, now, again, I had said that that wasn't the thrust of the message this morning. But if you're a note taker, I just, if you could, and follow along with me. Um, you know, the trouble that we have, and, and by the way, some of you, gals are reading um, Wiersbe's book on a servant of God and 
and, and again, I, I, I don't know which quotes I, I take it from Wearsby, but um, I, I recommended read. Uh, if maybe we'll, we'll get some. If you have a desire to serve God, you should read Wearsby's book on this. But anyway, there was a particular chapter that I kind of gravitated to and got stuck on and just meditated on it. So a lot of this is from Mr. Wearsby. I just want um, to tell you that. But many of us today that, see, we, we think we're called to be manufacturers um, rather than distributors. Um, and the point is that God and God alone only has the resources to meet human need. All we can do is receive his riches, right? His gifts, his resources, and then we can share them with others. But the big mistake within ministry is to begin to think that we manufacture this stuff. And we do that. I was going to have you turn to Acts chapter 3. We do not have the time. It's 10 after. So let me tell you what's going on in Acts 3. Of course, the church's birth, uh, the early church, the Christians were still using the Temple Mount to go up and worship. So Peter and John, they're on their way to go up to worship. And there was a guy that was laid before this gate. It was called Gate Beautiful. Every day he would be laid there to, to beg for alms. A familiar sight. It's a sight that no doubt Peter and John saw more than once. But one particular day as John and Peter are walking through the gate beautiful. It tells us there that they fixed their eyes on this man. He was lame, unable to walk. And when he fixed his eyes, this guy that was ill looked at them and speculated, thought right away, oh, they're going to give me some money. Peter and John, or mainly uh, Peter, looks down and he says in verse 6, Hey, buddy, silver and gold I don't have. I know that's what you want. But what I have, the resources that I already possess, now I give to you. And then he says that in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. You talk about one glorious day. Imagine yourself in and out this beautiful gate called Gate Beautiful. You know this guy's been here that the family drops him off every morning to beg so he can live. Nothing's ever happened. And now this guy is running circles around you in and out of the temple. You know something has just happened. And now all the crowd there starts to fasten their eyes on Peter and John. And I love the response. I wish more pastors would respond like this instead of taking credit and glory. I really do. Please, please receive that this morning. That the pastor, elder, deacon is not to receive any glory. Nothing, not a, not, none. That all the attention should be directed. Listen to what Peter said in verse 12 of chapter 3. He answers unto the people, you men of Israel, why on the world? Now again, I'm paraphrasing. Why marvel ye at this? And why do you look so earnestly on us as though it was by our power or our holiness has made this man? It wasn't our resource. It wasn't us. We didn't manufacture this. This was God. And it was marvelous. 
So when it comes to ministry, all of us, let's face it, we're bankrupt. Within our own selves, man, we have nothing, nothing that God can say, I need it. And without you, the church is going to crumble and fall apart. We are bankrupt and only God is rich. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10, Paul said, we are as poor yet making you rich. And that's how every servant of God should view themselves. I, we are poor. We are poor. We're saved just like you're, you're saved. You know, Jude said it like this, that we're all saved by the same common salvation. In other words, we're all saved the same way. No hierarchy when it comes to service. We're all the same. I think of this miracle, the feeding of 5,000. And by the way, and I think it's, no, I think, nothing. I know it's significant. It's only, it's mentioned in all four gospel gospels. Well, why is that important? Well, listen, you know, the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that whoever opens up the Bible and begins to read the gospels, they're going to read this account. And this is a story. This isn't a story about a miracle. And it's not a story about Jesus having the power. You know what? You know what is so um, mind-boggling, I guess, for me, is when I kept reading this and I kept reading it and kept reading it, I realized something. There's no reaction mention of the crowd. None. Not once. The only reaction that is mentioned is the reaction of the disciples. It's as if, he goes, this, this lesson's not about the crowd. This lesson is something I want to share with my disciples. And it's a lesson that I want to share with my disciples in the future. And you, you read this thing and you wonder, you know, what was it like when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 5, people? You know, he, he wasn't telling them, hey, listen, I think, you know, Andrew, what would be a good idea? He commanded them. He was in charge. He says, I want them to sit down and I want you to break them up into groups. Listen, I think the problem, one of the problems, by the way, is the disciples just didn't realize how poor they were. That's why I kind of think that... Um, when they said, hey, let's just sending them, send them away, I'm not too sure if they were just trying to um, skirt around a problem or alleviate a problem. But um, be that as it may, though, that Jesus avoided their, their solution or, or he rejected their solution. And, uh, but I know this, that the disciples did not have the same compassion that Jesus had. There's no way they could have. And again, not to, not to beat this thing up, but I think that what the Holy Spirit wants us to entertain today before we go is how much compassion, empathy, do we really have as his disciples? It is not to be a guilt trip, it's not to be condemning, it really isn't. But aren't you glad you have a heavenly father that's willing enough to get so low that he can challenge us about, are we really sympathetic towards the needs 
of people. They, they wanted to send them away, but God wanted to minister to these people. And too often when a minister looks at a problem, he's so willing to say, that's beyond my resources. Let's just move on and go to the next chapter. When God is saying, no, 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 no. I want to minister to these people. But I, we don't have the resources. Well, then what do you have? Well, I just, I just took this kid's lunch. That's all we have. See, in their minds, it's not enough. But in God's mind, in God's heart, it's probably more than enough. You know what I mean, guys? The only thing God has asked you and I, listen, please, church, before we leave here, is to present ourselves to him. To be distributors and not manufacturers. Romans, man, is one of my favorite verses. To present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, which is holy and reasonable service unto him. That word reasonable, place. listen, it's the most logical thing you could ever do. You want to know what's logical? To admit that God knows best and that we are bankrupt. But if we give ourselves unto him as a living sacrifice, he can say, oh, I don't care if you only need, know three chords on that guitar. I want to, I want to work. I want these people to worship me. Oh, Lord, all I know is kumbaya. Well, then sing it with your heart. Oh, Lord, I, I, I just started studying the Bible. Well, just give me what you have. It's just two loaves and three and five, uh, or five loaves and two fish, God. But just give me that. That's all I need. And every one of us, each and every one of us, you have a gift. That's what the Bible teaches us. If you are a part of his church, his body, his ecclesia, then if you search down in your heart, you are going to find one of the 20-some gifts of the Bible. And he's going to ask you, listen, I'm not asking you to be Billy Graham. I'm just asking you to just go share with that person over there. They're going to hell. Well, Lord, all I know is you love me. But then go tell them that you... I love them. That's all you need to do. And watch what I manufacture. Watch what I can do. Not only are they satisfied, they're gluttoned. They're full. But again, gang, God's willing enough to get down to our level so we can understand it and say it's more than just being sympathetic. It's about having compassion. Weeping with people who will weep, cry with people, who will cry. There's no such thing, please listen, as a rich man in the kingdom of heaven. I mean physically. Poor, rich, it's all the same in God's eyes. Amen? Sean, if you'll make your way out, buddy. Man, I really, I really jumped ahead you know, the best place really to, to start with is this one word, and it's called grace. Grace. You think about it. Just this unmerited, unlearned favor that he has for you. Because when you understand the grace of God, you know, um, we are so rich. Um, in fact, in, in Luke chapter 6, this is how rich we are. 
where it says this. That it will be given you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be in your bosom with you the same measure that you use. It will be measured back to you. In other words, it's just that basic law of the kingdom of God. The servant who knows how poor they are will become the riches. And those who give the most will receive the most to give back. When we realize how rich we are, you think about this. Ephesians chapter 1, we have the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 3, we have the riches of his glory. And Ephesians chapter 3 again, unsearchable riches. This is all God's grace towards you. That's why he can say we are rich in his mercy and that we are rich in his wisdom. All you need to know is how rich you are with just two loaves or two fish and five loaves of bread. Did I get that backwards? Doesn't matter, still a happy meal. You're rich with just the gifts and talents that God has given you. So take that and allow God just to put into your hearts the compassion. The empathy for people who are hurting. And you watch. The more you give out. The more you will receive. In order to give it back out. It's a good place to be. Blessed are the poor. Let's stand together. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God's able to make all grace abound to you. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound, may abound in every good work. It's about grace, guys. If you feel a little lost serving him, no need. Get in your prayer closet. Address your father in heaven. And through his Holy Spirit, he will say, child, son, daughter, you've got the gift of exhortation. Go find somebody that needs to be exhorted. Hey, daughter, you got the, the gift of, of helps. There's plenty of people that just need a hand right today. And, just, and, and the more you do it, the more you exercise your gifts, the more God will give you more grace and more grace and more grace. And before you know it, and I think, gang, not very long, man, it's in the near future, we are going to be seeing him face to face, and you're going to hear, well done, good, faithful, what? Yeah, not good and faithful Christian and good and faithful pastor and good and faithful worship leader. He looks at us all the same, servants, amen? The only reason... That I'm a little higher than you is because I'm standing up here. That's the only reason. But that does mean I'm going to get to heaven before you if the rapture happens. I'm about, to, except for Big Giant back here, he's still as tall as I am. But anyway, let's worship together and we'll pray together.